Hi, my name is Pastor Jim. I'm one of the pastors here. Man, it is amazing to fill this place. Thank you for being here. It is full. I am sorry to the people out in the lobby. Um, we go to one service in the summer, and we have to rethink that, I think. Um, but it is so good to be in the house of the Lord together, is it not? Yes, it is. Um, so we're, we're kind of starting a new, we started it last week, but kind of a new thing that we're doing. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to read the scripture um, for the message today. And before I read that, I will say, hear the word of the Lord. And then when I'm finished, um, I will say, this is the word of God. And then we said last week after that, everyone's going to say, thanks be to God. Because we are so grateful for his word, right? So we're going to try to do that. So you guys remember your part, all right? <laughs> Let me read. Um, today's uh, sermon message is on Psalm chapter 4, and it's a night prayer. For the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, God, who vindicates me. You freed me from my affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Selah. Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Reflect in your heart while you're on your bed and be silent. Selah. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us anything good? Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they when they have their grain and their new and their new wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father in heaven, um, man, I am so grateful that we can gather and, and sing to you, worship you, and we get to hear from your word. And, and I pray that you would humble us. You would humble us and know that your word is, is vital for our understanding, for our transformation, for us to become the people you want us to be. We need to love your word. We need to know your word. We need to be eager for it to transform us. So I pray that we would be humble people today as we hear your word. Father, I, I do pray for shalom. Shalom in each of us. That is only provided from you. I think it's what we desire more than anything else. So I pray today that we would understand that better. And again, I just pray above all else you'd be honored and that you would work in a mighty way here today. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Father, we come before you today and, and we think of the vision of Isaiah to see the angels flying around saying, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is 
to come. There is no other God like you, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not yet been done. You are the great ancient of days, and we worship you, and we love you, oh God. Anoint this place now. Continue to anoint us with your spirit to open our eyes and see wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm chapter 4. Psalm chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, you can find uh, Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, some of those chairs. And if you're looking at one of those Bibles, you'll find Psalm 4 on page 473. So turn, and we're going to put the words on the screen for you, but I'd love for you to have your paper copies of God's Word so you can mark it up and remember what you heard and learned from the Spirit today. False accusations. People tearing down your reputation with utter disregard for its effects on your joy, peace, safety, or well-being. Withering criticism. The most painful kind comes from those with influence and power that are closest to you among your community, whether that community is your job, your neighborhood, your family, or even, and worse, your church family. I think that's the worst because it would make sense that The church would be the place that you would expect to feel most safe from withering criticism. A nonstop barrage of verbal volleys from a person or a group that slowly erodes your confidence and hope to ever be able to live up to their expectations or yours. It can leave you in a desolate place, a lonely place, where little, if any, joy remains and and you can find no peace and little rest and no sleep because the thought that fills your mind and inner world becomes, I'll never be enough. Such a place, like those places, are absent of shalom at the hands of mankind. It is thus a place lacking safety and security where, where you can find yourself flinching emotionally and mentally, even physically, at the prospect of another attack. I wonder if you've ever lived in a place like that. I have. And it's toxic. It's trauma that reshapes and misshapes and rewires you with lasting effects. It It saps your strength, robs your joy, steals your peace, leaves you feeling unsafe, all of it threatening your ability to trust in Yahweh. Unless you think that that's a bit dramatic, this is the human experience. Even for tough dudes like the Apostle Paul, who wrote to a church family in the city of Corinth about just such a time in his life, a time of real affliction that he endured. He, he describes its intensity like this. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. 
Interestingly, Paul believed that such intense affliction had happened to him for the sake of others. He writes to those suffering in Corinth with a testimony of his own trial, not merely to prove that misery loves company, but rather to explain the misery. You see, he told them that it taught him to trust not himself, but in God, who, as you just saying, who raises the dead. He shared his story because the trial included within it the presence and comfort of God. And because he knew what that was like because of the trial, Paul could now point them to God. Paul could be used to comfort them. He could hold out hope in the possibility of rescue. And King David, well, he just does the same centuries before. You see, King David knows what it's like to live in the kind of a place where a group of influential and powerful people that were supposed to love and support him, fellow children of God, all living in the same family, well, they lofted verbal volleys that sapped his strength and robbed his joy and stole his peace and left him feeling unsafe, all of it threatening to cause him to no longer trust in Yahweh. And he wrote his story, his, his personal testimony, because that's what this is in Psalm 4. It's his story. He wrote it so that we might be comforted. King David is holding out the possibility of a way forward when these kinds of, kinds of trials become a part of our story or the story of someone that we love. Paul describes stories like David's this way. Here's how he says it in Romans 15, whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope, that we may have confidence, that we may endure, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, that would happen. And Paul looked back at Psalm 4 and he knew that that's why that's in the Bible. So you would have hope. As you'll see in your service guide that you got on the way in, I see three things here. Hope for relief and distress, hope in loving our enemies, and hope in Yahweh, not man, for joy, peace, and safety. Most attacks that happen to us aren't of the physical kind, right? Rather, words are used as weapons. We learn this in our earliest years on the rough and tumble playgrounds of our youth. Do you remember the little ditty that someone taught all of us at some point when we were headed out to the playground? Do you remember it? What's the little ditty? <gasps> Sticks and stones, they break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Which is hopeful, but not true. It's not true, because names do hurt. I was physically crippled for most of my childhood, and I, I remember being called all kinds of unique and creative names. And it hurt, sometimes a lot. And name-calling or being falsely accused or mocked or scorned or made fun of, whether that's in grade school, kids, junior high, senior high, college, I mean, life, whether you're a kid or an adult, it hurts, right? And what do we do? Well, we could turn to our friends for sympathy, or we could go on an all-out scorched earth offensive, 
<laughs> Ever try that? Fight back that way? Social media seems to be pretty good for that. King David does neither of those things. Instead, King David prays. He prays boldly. You see, King David doesn't just ask for things from God. King David makes demands. Three of them. Verse 1. Answer me when I call, God who vindicates me. You freed me from affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David calls out to God with a full expectation that he will be answered, graced, and heard. He's harassed, but hopeful. Pressed down, but persistent. Bummed out, but bouncing back. You see, instead of simmering in his own situation, rather than recounting his own resources, King David ponders God a great deal more than he ponders himself. And his God is a God who vindicates him. In what way? What's that mean? Well, another way to translate this phrase would be to say, answer, answer me when I call God my righteousness. And this recognition is so important, you guys. It is so rich what David is doing right here because it is a recognition of God's character, which means it is a description of how he will act. In other words, because God is righteous, he does right. He brings about righteous realities. He acts on behalf of the innocent. He defends the rights of the maligned. He protects those falsely accused. He is a father who fiercely loves his children. Oh, I, I just got goosebumps. I love that he fiercely loves us and protects us. And he promises us his presence and peace. And so David calls on God, my righteousness. And he does this because he has a history with this God and his character and his righteous action. You see it there in the past tense. You freed me from affliction. And here's another phrase that's just so rich. What this phrase means is, is it's like it's being found in a tight spot. It's like when you're being cornered. He's like, I was cornered, God. I was restrained and I was constrained. Have you ever felt like that in a situation because of someone or something in your life? Like something that was just hemming you in and you couldn't find any way out and it was just squeezing the stuffing out of you. Anybody? David says, I remember what that was like. And do you remember what it was like when you were freed from that? Like when that ended? When that situation like released and how there's just like this huge relief and it just felt like all of a sudden there's just these open spaces and you could just like, oh man, I can breathe again. <laughs> it's over. That's what David is recounting. You did that for me, God. I was, I was hemmed in and you just opened it up and you gave me a chance to breathe again. And that's just the first verse of this psalm. This prayer to God. It's amazing. In one verse, Dale, Dale Ra Ralph Davis points out, David declares God's character, remembers God's mercies, and presses his emergency. He focuses on God's tendencies. He remembers God's goodness. And then he pleads for God's grace. You can already sense his confidence start to build at the end of just verse one of this psalm. 
And I think we need to follow his example. Don't think merely about yourself or what's going on around you. Ponder. Get your eyes up. Ponder God. And there you'll find hope for relief in distress. Now part two, verse two. How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? This isn't just anyone attacking the king. They are exalted ones, which means that they are people of standing and power and influence. And they are seemingly unafraid of the fact that David is the king because they are insulting his honor. And they love to spread stories of empty and baseless charges about David. Worthless words. And they're pursuing lies about him. They're spreading deception about him. They are slanderers of the worst kind. And this isn't just anyone that they are attacking. Verse 3, know that Yahweh has set apart the faithful for himself. Yahweh will hear when I call to him. David is the covenant king, right? He is chosen, appointed, and set apart by Yahweh himself. And the king has no reservations whatsoever of reminding them of this fact. If they're upset that David is king, if they're upset about how he's acting as king, David says, the bone that you have to pick is not with me. He made me king. You got a problem with who I am, you have to take that up with God. Yahweh is the one who tapped Samuel on the shoulder and appointed me king. And Yahweh and I have a special relationship. And King David reminds them of exactly what that means. When I call, he answers. I am the chosen one. Yahweh listens to me. I have access to Yahweh. I have a direct line to the sovereign one. Do you see what he's showing us? Those of us who stand in his line, as children of God, those brought into the presence of Yahweh through his very own son, the Messiah, David shows us that the weapon against slander is not to think about what others think about you or what others are saying about you, but to focus on how God thinks about you and what God says about you. That's what he's showing you. Your enemies come against you. He chose me. I'm his and he listens to me. I have a fierce big brother. Look out. This is why we need to, we need to plumb the scriptures to see the things that God says about us, that Yahweh says about us, how he thinks about us. Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. Now this is what, I love this. <laughs> this is how it starts out. Now this is what Yahweh says. The one who created you, the one who formed you, this is what he says. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. Ron, Susan, Lydia, Gary, Jonathan, Laura, Rachel, I've called you by name. You're mine. So when you pass through the waters, slanderous attack, I will be with you. And the rivers will not overwhelm you, even if they're at 2,400 CPS, CFS, 
whatever. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. And what about what, what we saw, what he said just weeks ago in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 to 35? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? <laughs> God is the one who declares you right. Who is the one who condemns? Messiah Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he's been raised and is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. <gasps> who can separate us from the love of Messiah? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, can any of that separate us? No. I am not saying that it is easy to deal with, with slanderers. Okay? It's not. It's not. However, David is showing us a way forward. A path to hope and confidence. <laughs> what he's saying is, don't listen to the blabberings of your enemies. Speak back. Boldly. Yahweh's, Yahweh is going to hear when I call to him, so I'm not worried about you. That's what you have to say. With confidence. Now, in stunning fashion, King David goes one step further. He functions, what happens next, is he functions as the king that he is, who has subjects to take care of. He functions as the shepherd of Yahweh that he is, who has sheep to tend, even if it means with the rod. And so David now does this. He cares for his enemies. Why? Because David knows they're still God's children. And they are acting in a way that will bring God's wrath. And David wants to do something about that. Because he's actually a good leader despite what they're saying about him. And he knows what they need. And this is so hard, isn't it? When people are coming against you and wanting to hurt you. And what you're supposed to see is they need to repent and they need forgiveness. Verse 4, he turns from talking to God to talking to them. Be angry and do not sin. Reflect in your heart while on your bed and be silent. Selah. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust Yahweh. You see, King David's time is just like ours. It, there's a lot of times in King David's time when people were lying on their beds, it was a time where they could hatch evil plans and schemes to, to get at the people that they didn't like, to try and take care of them. Creating evil plans and imagining all kinds of ways to bring about their downfall. But David now calls for a different kind of activity from them. Be angry. Okay, if you're paying attention, you may say, Matthew, that doesn't sound like altogether a different activity than evil schemes and plans. Be angry. Why would he tell them to be angry? Well, here's the thing about the word that David uses here. Most often, it actually means to tremble. Now, that could be trembling in rage or anger. Sure, that, that could be the case. But when we look at the context of what David is saying to his enemies, I don't think that is the case. Rather, here's what I think David is saying. David is saying, tremble, Tremble in awe before God, but don't sin. Tremble, 
but don't say the kind of words that you've been tempted to say and have been saying. Tremble and instead reflect on those things in your heart. Then offer sacrifices in righteousness. In other words, motivated by a right kind of heart that is truly changed and not just an outward display. And then trust in Yahweh again. Do you see the, the kind of trembling that King David is after is a trembling before Yahweh in repentance. Because the, real, because the realization of their slanderous sin has come upon them and they seek forgiveness and cleansing through sacrifice and then fully place their trust in Yahweh and what he wants from them and what he wants for them. That's what King David says to his enemies. Repent and trust in Yahweh again. I think that's beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, you guys, family, David right now looks a lot like Jesus who said, do you remember what Jesus said about your enemies? What did he say? Love your enemies. Jesus tells us that we should do good to those that hate us, that we should bless those who curse us, that we should pray for those who mistreat us. And I don't know about you, but those are not my first reactions in situations like this. My first reaction is to defend, to get angry, to get back. So why would King David and King Jesus both act and think this way and set an example for us? I think it's because they know that there are benefits to such a heart response of loving your enemies and calling them to repentance and forgiveness. You see, King David knows that he is going to be freed from his enemy's power over him if he acts this way. He knows that what they are doing is wrong and what they are saying is not true. So he points them to Yahweh because he loves them and in so doing, he doesn't give them power over his thoughts and his attitude and thus his life. Even more, <laughs> King David is, is benefiting because he's teaching himself something about repentance even as he encourages it so that the next time this happens when he sins in this way, because he will, and you will, he'll know what to do himself and he'll know how God is going to respond. This is what David will need to do and repentance and restoration will be available for him too. Do you see how his confidence is growing? <laughs> I hear him getting more confident as the psalm goes on. There is hope in loving our enemies. And now, having talked to his enemies, he's got one last thing to say to Yahweh. You see, David was, King David was a good shepherd. He was a good shepherd. He wasn't a perfect shepherd, right? <laughs> we know his story. Most of us in this room know his story. But he did care for and know his people well. He knew that many of them struggled with the state of God's people in the wider world in relationship to the promises of the covenant. Theirs was a people who was often in turmoil. Right? Wasn't Israel often in turmoil? Which brought about a lot of frustration because of unfulfilled expectations regarding all of the blessings that should have been theirs. Right? And we all know what happens when people have unfulfilled expectations, don't we? 
We all know what happens when people thought something was supposed to happen but didn't and something quite different did. What happens? People start looking for someone to blame. <laughs> right? Is it your fault that my life is this way? Verse 6. Many are asking, who can show us anything good? In other words, what are you doing, king? Why aren't things better for us? Why aren't all the promises coming true? I mean, isn't that your job? Like, to make my life better, you're the king. And this is the kind of, this is the kind of charge, this is the kind of question that so easily strikes right to my heart. If someone levels this against me, it goes in deep to all of my insecurities. I immediately want to figure out how to make every, everything okay. Are you doing anything good? You know, it's kind of like the, what have you done for me lately? Kind of a deal, right? And I, m my response is like, okay, just tell me what to do and I'll make everything okay. I'll make it all right. Just, I'll do it. I, I just want to make you happy. <laughs> it's the wiring in me. But that's not what King David does. He doesn't respond to them, and he doesn't look at himself. Once again, David sets his eyes firmly on Yahweh and prays. Verse 6 again, second half. Let the light of your face shine on us, Yahweh. Okay, family, do you recognize that line? You, you hear it almost every Sunday at the end of our service here at Grace, right? Do, do you remember it? I see lots of heads shaking. That makes me happy. And, and family, this is, this is why the words of God and worship are so important because they accomplish things. They make things happen in us. They have the power to transform us. You see, David actually believes the benediction that he has heard at worship services since just a wee lad. David doesn't think that it's just some neat little ditty that can wrap up the gathering, you know, some religious frosting on his church cake. No, David believes that Yahweh will respond when these words are said. He believes that Yahweh answers the call for blessing because the king believes that the words given by Yahweh himself to Moses and Aaron have power. May Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Do you hear three things there that are in Psalm 1? Light, grace, and peace. David had felt that transformation in his own life, and so now he's, he's calling that down again. And so to the question, who can show us anything good? The answer from David comes confidently, filled with sure and certain hope. Let the light of your face shine on us, Yahweh. One commentator reflects this way. When Yahweh hides his face, he cloaks his presence. Right? That makes sense. And then because of that, humans experience terrible limitations of their own meager power in the presence of life's destructive possibilities. But when Yahweh's face shines, using the imagery of the life-giving sun... Humans then experience the benefit and joy that his presence brings. 
This is what King David seeks as the antidote to the current darkness. The very realization of the presence of Yahweh. That's why he's saying let your, let your light shine. Because if the light is shining, who's there? God! He's in the presence of Yahweh. And then everything's going to be okay. David knows this. He's experienced this. It's what he says. Verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Yahweh, make me live in safety. There are few things more significant in an agrarian culture than harvest time. Right? Harvest time, when you bring in the harvest. I mean, that's a time for celebrating and joy and happiness. It means that food stores abound, which means full bellies and secure financial positions. Celebrations and feasts mark such seasons in the life of a farming people who depend on the land for security. And King David here shares that his joy and peace and safety cannot be dependent on the creation, but are dependent on the creator. And as he completes this psalm, this worship song, this story, this prayer, David has arrived a changed man. And in quiet repose, it it sinks deep into David's being. I mean, this is what this is what we're praying for right now. This is what is going to happen in you that that you could say, "There's more joy in my heart because of God." because of Jesus than anything else that the creation could offer. That we would know this family. Which means, unlike those slanderers trembling in their beds, (laughs) right? King David lies down and sleeps in peace. This last week, someone sent me a, a video clip entitled, Why I Can't Sleep. It was pretty hilarious, actually, because it hits so close to home for many of us. He's, he's reflecting on how his brain and body can't seem to connect and agree on this whole issue of, of sleep. He, in, in, here's what he says. I, I want to share this with you. You know, I can be, like, barely able to stand up tired, and my body is like, uh, hey, brain, we should probably go to bed. And my brain is like, Totally. Let's do it. And then my brain is like, hey, just a minute. Uh, Remember all that stuff, you know, that you have absolutely no control over in your life? Remember those difficult situations that you're in? Like here they all are, right here. Let's Let's just think about these together for a moment. And then my body is like, brain, It's two o'clock in the morning. I can't do anything about that right now. So my brain is like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, my bad. No, that's okay. That's my bad. Hey, how about some bad memories from your childhood? How about how about that? How about a little bad memory? Or or how about that? Remember that incredibly scary scene from that movie that you shouldn't have watched? How about that? Here it is, right here for you. (laughs) Or how about you have to go potty again. <laughs> and you actually don't have to go potty. You just feel like you have to go potty, but 
can we all relate to this? I think, I think we can. And David says there's another way. You see, he had called on his enemies to trust in Yahweh, and now he's showing us exactly what that looks like. This is so beautiful here. It looks like resting in the presence of God that brings joy to the heart. It looks like laying down all of our burdens at his feet and laying down and sleeping in peace because we know that Yahweh alone is going to make us live. He's going to make us live in safety. It means that the things that might produce worry and anxiety all of our bad memories, the scary situations, the slanderers seeking to tear us down. Well, Yahweh's got this. He can provide safety. He can get us out of the tight spot. He can broaden our way and, and help us breathe again. You see, Yahweh family is our sure and certain hope to joy and peace and safety. And when the world, when the world was seemingly at its darkest, when it all seemed lost, that it was lost for God's people, and they were oppressed under Rome's boot, at just the right time, another king was sent. Another king was anointed to save and to shepherd his people. Another king was sent to be the Messiah. God himself would be incarnated, fully God and fully man. And do you know, do you remember what was announced at the coming of this king? <laughs> Don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great Joy, that'll be for all the people. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those whom he favors. You see, this table is about the fullness of the blessings that God has promised through an anointed one, through a king from the line of David, a king who, like David, was slandered and mistreated. He was mocked and scorned. He was falsely accused and tried and put to death on a cross with a sign over his head that read, King of the Jews. And do you know why he did that? To be our sure and certain hope of joy and peace and safety. Jesus said that his desire was that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be full, John 15. Jesus said that our sorrows would one day all turn into joy, John 16. Jesus said that there is a day that is coming when no one will take away our joy, John 16. Jesus told us to ask for anything, to ask for anything from the Father, to call to him, Psalm 4.1, to pray to him in Jesus' name, to ask in this way so that we will receive whatever we ask for as his children so that what? Our joy would be full. Jesus instructed his disciples that he would give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul wrote that in Jesus we would receive the kingdom of God, which is peace and joy in that same spirit. Further, that the fruit of the Spirit is 
joy. And Peter, dear Peter, (laughs) told us that though we have not seen Jesus, we love him. And though not seeing him now, we believe in him. And we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We have more joy in Jesus than any grain or rivers of new wine could supply. Even though we will use grain and the fruit of the vine to celebrate that fact. It's not just that Jesus brings joy. Jesus brings peace. Jesus promised peace to his disciples as he left this earth and ascended to his Father. Peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not be afraid of the world, for I have overcome the world. Jesus knew that we'd face trouble, just like David, which is why he said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Peace, you will have suffering in this world, but be courageous, I have conquered the world. Paul taught that Jesus not only brings peace, but Jesus is our peace. He is the one who tore down the wall of hostility that was between us and the Father. He taught that Jesus brought those not only who were far off into peace, but those who were near into a place of peace Paul believed in the peace that Jesus brings so much that he started all 13 of his letters with a declaration and proclamation of the peace of the Messiah. And because we have been made right by our trust in Yahweh, we have peace with God through Jesus. Because of our trust, the God of hope will fill us with all joy and peace. Are you worried about the great accuser, Satan, who's coming against us? We are told in the scriptures that the God of peace will crush him under our feet. We have the promise that the God of love and peace will be with us. We are instructed that the fruit of the Spirit is peace. We should be filled with confidence, knowing that the feet of every disciple is sandaled with the gospel, the good news of the preparation of peace. Carrying it with us wherever we go. Giving it to others all around us. And we can live boldly, trusting that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Jesus the Messiah and that the peace of the Messiah will rule our hearts. Text me if you want all the references. (laughs) And here's the remarkable thing about peace. Bound up in the kind of shalom, the peace that the scriptures talk about is this idea of absolute and utter safety. Safety from our foes and enemies and harm. May Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What we're meant to feel is a a security, a safety there in the presence of God that nothing can harm us and no one can ultimately touch us. John Goldengay says that Aaron's blessing spoke of shalom, the well-being of the whole person, and a worshiper could use these words to express an expectation of experiencing shalom in the broadest possible sense. I love that. An expectation. Worship team, would you come up? Isn't it, isn't it great to know that God sets the expectation for us? <laughs> 
we have an expectation of peace. I think it's why the Apostle Paul talks so much about peace between the people of God. We should be experiencing this between, so that others can come into this and experience the shalom of God. It's why we say that we want to create here a gentle environment of the good news plus safety plus time because this is a place that, that no one should have absolutely anything to fear. No manipulation, no accusation, no condemnation. That's what this table is about. The promise of peace. The promise of safety. The promise of joy. There is fulfillment here in the body and blood of the Lamb of God if you'll trust him. Would you trust him? You don't have to be a member of Grace Church to take part in the meal that Jesus gave us. All you have to do is be trusting, as David says, in Yahweh alone, in Jesus alone. Just be trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of all of your sins and the fulfillment of all of God's promises to you of peace and joy and safety, even eternal life. Just trust in him, not your works, not anything that anybody can do for you, not buying your way in. I want you to come and eat and drink things that money cannot buy. Just trust in him. That could happen right now. You could say, okay, I don't even fully understand this, Jesus, but I want what I'm hearing. <laughs> and you could have your first communion. So that section, go to that wall. And come, uh, servers, could you come up? Elders, go to that wall and then come around this table and, and you'll, you'll be served. This section, go towards that wall and come down and then back in and then this section, go that way. Come around in that section over there. Go to that wall and then hold the elements. Spend some time in prayer talking to our Father in Jesus' name and then we'll celebrate the elements all together, okay? Come and welcome to Jesus. Jesus.